Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 746 of the Juicebox Podcast. Karen has type 1 diabetes, and she's on the show today to talk about what it's like to manage blood sugars through pregnancy. We're also going to talk about her experience with in vitro fertilization. And I'd like to warn you before the episode begins that Karen expected to be pregnant while she was recording this. Karen was pregnant previous to when we recorded this episode, but she very sadly and unexpectedly was not when we actually recorded. I didn't want that to be a surprise for you when you heard it. So I just wanted to tell you up front. If you're a U.S. citizen who has type 1 diabetes or is the caregiver of someone with type 1, it would mean a lot to me and to many other people if you went to t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox and filled out their survey. It's super simple to do. It does not take long at all. You'll be helping people with type 1. You'll probably be helping yourself and you'll be supporting the Juicebox podcast. There's a lot of good that goes into those 10 minutes at t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. Today's episode of the Juicebox Podcast is sponsored by Touched by Type 1, a great diabetes organization who has asked me to ask you to check them out. And you can do that at touchedbytype1.org or by finding them on Facebook or Instagram. The podcast is also sponsored today by InPen from Medtronic Diabetes. InPen is an insulin pen that does much more than you expect. Learn more about it at InPenToday.com. The InPen may cost you as little as $35. Listen to the ad for details. At our house, we buy Arden's Omnipod and Dexcom supplies from US Med, and you could too. Call 888-721-1514 or go to usmed.com forward slash juicebox to get your free benefits checked. You can find links to US Med, InPen, and Touch by Type 1 in the show notes of your podcast player or at juiceboxpodcast.com. All I need from you is to click on my links or to type them into a browser if you're interested in anything you hear in the advertisements. Doing that supports the show, and I very much appreciate it. Yeah, my name's Karen, and I was diagnosed with type 1 when I was 35. No family history. I have a a cousin once removed who has type 1, but um, I don't think that's close enough for the doctors to even count it as family history. So it was a shock and no, um, no obvious symptoms. I didn't have the normal like peeing a lot or thirsty or that kind of stuff. Um, I went to the doctor for a totally unrelated reason and then they caught it. And so, uh, yeah, it was, it was shocking and, um, yeah, I'm happy to talk about that in more detail, but I'm in, and I reached out to you to maybe come on the podcast because, I was doing IVF. My husband and I were doing IVF to try to get pregnant. And um, yeah, a lot actually has happened since I wrote you. So oh, we okay. can uh, we can 
yeah, we but can go into we'll that. We'll pick it apart uh, for sure. I want to tell you that uh, I count a cousin once removed as a family history. Okay. I, I would okay. count. I would count celiac, um, thyroid, a grandmother who was tired all the time. I would count any of that. <laughs> so okay, you know what I mean. Like it's uh, it's weird how autoimmune pops up in people's lives. But I get what you're saying. Like in your in your circle, in your family circle, there's there's nothing like that. Are there other autoimmune issues that you found? Not not that I know of, but then for me, after the diabetes, then we realized the infertility issues and that they think was um, primary ovarian insufficiency, which is basically like premature menopause, which is an autoimmune problem. So, um, oh. you know, I, I know when you have one autoimmune issue, you're more likely to have multiple. And so I guess, uh, so I've had, so I've had now that pop up, but no other autoimmune disorders in my family. Yeah. You don't want your autoimmune diseases to be lonely. That's a, yeah, definitely. I mean, just think of them (laughs) all by themselves with no one to talk to. Um, (laughs) so how old are you now? Uh, 37. So this is just all in the last two years. Yeah. Prior to your diagnosis and learning all this, had you had children or thought about having children before? I mean, I always wanted children, but I just um, took a while to find a guy who I wanted to have children with. And so we just got married two and a half years ago in August. And, um, and so it was at that point that, you know, we started to try to have kids. Oh, you got diabetes for your, as a wedding gift. I, I did. And actually, so I had undiagnosed terrible diabetes at my wedding and I didn't know. And I'm so glad in retrospect that I didn't know at that time. Um, and then it was like six weeks later that I was diagnosed. You know, my wife and I have two children and, uh, she's still looking for a guy worthy of having kids with. So <laughs> I'm glad you took your time. Uh, so wait a minute. So you had, were you just like thrilled you look great in your wedding dress or what was going on there? How long? Did yeah, you actually. Symptoms? So I said, no, no obvious symptoms, but I had lost weight. And so, um, that was just very convenient. Yeah. I was nice and thin for my wedding. I had lost, I'd lost weight, but I lived, my husband and I lived in Rwanda, um, the year that year prior. And so I just chalked up the weight loss to like a different diet living in, you know, Africa. Um, and I had a couple, uh, infections, like an eye infection that had like come back a few times when we were in Rwanda. But again, I just like chalked it up to like different, you know, I don't know, different bacterias and, and viruses in a different country. Right. And so I didn't, um, I, I never suspected, you know, diabetes, I guess I got back and it had been two months and I hadn't put weight back on. So maybe I should have, maybe that should have been a red flag to me, but, um, well, you had a reason to no, think I otherwise, didn't. right? Like it's all you need is like one thing to go, Oh yeah, it's probably that. And then you can kind of let it go. Yeah. yeah. And and my husband's a doctor. And so like, um, I remember also I had some numbness in my toes and I told him that, but it was, he was like, well, you know, take a hot shower and see if that helps and stuff. But we just didn't, we never thought critically enough, you know, about these little things. Um, Yeah. And then I just, I went to the doctor because my knees hurt when I run and I wanted a physical therapy referral. And um, my doctor knew that I wanted to get pregnant. So she was like, well, do you want to do a blood test just to have kind of your baseline records 
your baseline's on record because when you get pregnant, things can get out of whack. So it was like, sure, I guess. I mean, we could have just as easily not done it. And then we did it. And then she called me back that afternoon and was like, whoa, uh, I need you to come back in (laughs) right now. I don't know if like this is a mistake or what, but my blood sugar, I think was 448 and my, um, my A1C was 13.2 when I was diagnosed. Wow. You had had it for a while. So, you know, for people who listen to the show a lot, they heard you say Rwanda and they thought, oh God, we're never going to get into her story because Scott's going to ask why she was in Rwanda, which I am going to ask. So can we, can we do that first? Did you have to go all the way to, um, to Rwanda to find a doctor to marry or what were you doing? (laughs) No, um, I met my husband before Rwanda and, um, and I, I'm a, a journalism professor and we, and I wanted to apply for a Fulbright um, fellowship. Mm-hmm. And so I, when I met my now husband, you know, I told him, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to apply for these Fulbrights. So when we just started dating, I was like, Hey, you should apply too. And, um, we looked and there were some medical ones available too in Rwanda. And so we both applied to be Fulbright scholars independently. Like we didn't tell them we were dating or anything and we both got it. So we both went and um, we're Fulbright scholars in Rwanda together for a year, which was just like awesome. It was so, we were so lucky to both, both get that, that opportunity and in the same country. So we were both teaching and researching in Rwanda for a year. That's crazy. Hey, for the remainder of the podcast, I'm going to refer to your husband as Dr. Warm Shower, just so you know. Um, <laughs> that's, that's, what he, that's what he got out of medical school, huh? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's hilarious. Uh, okay, so you're home now from Rwanda. You're having these problems. You you end up at the doctor, you know, because you wanted, to, you wanted a physical therapy appointment. That's an odd route to it. Um, you come back to her office then her, right? You said, yeah. And, and yeah, then and she, how does it go from there? And then she finger pricks me again and it's still super high. And, um, she said, you know, you have diabetes <laughs> and I, you know, like I think probably most Americans, my, not my knowledge of diabetes at the time was, you know, next to nothing. And so I was like, what else could it be? Like, what else could high blood sugar be? You know, what are some other things? She Probably was like, my mm, knee. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Nothing it means you have diabetes. I was, I think I was really just in disbelief. Sure. And, um, and she called, uh, we called uh, my husband and, and it was kind of like, do you, do you want to come, you know, over here, like for this talk? And, I, I was kind of like, oh, I don't, I don't think that's necessary. Like, I, 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 de- I definitely was in shock and didn't understand the, the gravity, gravity of, of what this meant. Yeah. And, um, and, but yeah, so she, you know, taught me how to prick my finger and how to give an insulin shot and sent me home with, you know, uh, prescriptions to stop and get insulin and, um, and get a, um, a CGM, she sent me home with, um, what's the one that's not Dexcom? Libre? Yeah, she sent mm-hmm. me home with a freestyle Libre. So I had that for the first couple months. And um, wow, yeah, I mean, I was just uh, really surprised and then just started like digging in to try to learn as much as I could uh, about diabetes. And then, of course, had an appointment um, 
shortly after with an endo. And so uh, when, yeah, when she first diagnosed me, she didn't know for sure if I was type one or type two or a mm-hmm. 1.5 kind of situation. But then it was, um, then my endo said I was a type one. Um, although I've recently changed endocrinologists because I moved and my new endo was like, maybe you're a, a LADA and maybe we'll test for that, but not until after a lot of this, um, having babies stuff is over, but gotcha. anyway, I was diagnosed with type one. And then, yeah, thankfully my endocrinologist was wonderful. And I mean, he spent three hours with me at that first appointment and even every appointment after that was I don't know, an hour and a half or something. I hear a lot of people you know, complain about their, um, their diabetes team. And I was really lucky to have excellent doctors and educators and stuff, but still it just shocks me how little information you get. Even, even when I had several hours, there's just so much to know and so much to learn. I mean, I think when people are diagnosed, they automatically need to be enrolled in a class, you know, where I don't know, you spend the next six months or something learning about diabetes and how to manage it. Cause there's just, and I understand why they can't tell you everything in that first appointment. Right. It would just be overwhelming, but there's so much to know. I was really shocked that you said that she just gave you like a script for insulin and some needles and sent you home. That was, um, I, I, I just expected you know, I talk to so many people who are, are getting children diagnosed and then they, they go to the hospital after that and the hospital brings their blood sugar down slowly and, and helps them understand everything. And um, I would have mentioned it earlier, but I was imagining your husband rooting around the house looking for the receipt for you to see if you were still in warranty or not. So I, was- <laughs> <laughs> I, I know I was like, oh, my God, you, this, like when we said in sickness and in health, I don't think you were going to you thought this was going to happen so soon. The sickness part. I was um, just trying to be positive. I didn't know it was going to be next week. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no. I, I Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I can I take a slight detour there? Um, did you have the wherewithal to think about that? Like, How long did you had you two been together prior to your marriage? Um, we had been together, uh, what, like two and a half years. Okay. I mean, not, not terribly long time. And, um, but no, I mean, there was no, there was no question. He definitely didn't want to leave me because of my diagnosis, but I was lucky that, that he is a doctor because he, you know, understood it. And it was also just an incredible resource for me to, you know, I was asking him, a hundred questions a day in the beginning about it. And he's been, I mean, just a saint uh, with handling it all. And so I've been very, very lucky. And and the doctor who diagnosed me and she was fantastic. And she, you know, explained as much as she could to me. I don't know why they didn't send me to the hospital, I guess, because I felt fine. I wasn't in DK or anything. Um, And she set me up to like, first just give like four units a day and for a couple of days, then, up at the six and up at the eight, you know, until it leveled out. And mm-hmm. so, she, I mean, she told me how to, um, how to slowly bring my blood sugar down. And she also knows my husband and he's a doctor. So I feel like I definitely had, um, you know, people who knew what was going on and, and, um, and, and I knew what, what to do as much as I could at that point. Yeah. But yeah, I, I have I have wondered like how do you decide when to send somebody to the hospital or not when they're being diagnosed if they're not in DK? You may find it interesting to know that when I speak to people who have a medical background, they feel that doctors 
assume they know what they're doing. So I did wonder about that. Did she know your husband was a doctor? And maybe she just thought like, ah, Dr. Wormshire will take care of it. That'll be it. You, you know, like that kind of thing. Um, she knew my husband, but she yeah. was, she, I mean, she was great at, at explaining things to me and, and getting me in with an endo um, as soon as she could. And, um, but I have definitely had that in other appointments with, with diabetes appointments or just, um, or the baby related appointments and stuff that the doctors, when my husband's there and they know he's a doctor, they definitely talk at a higher level. And sometimes I have to be like, okay, bring that back down for me. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> Journalism major over here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't study the bigger words. Um, well, that's okay. So how long did it take you, or maybe I'm speaking for you and you don't, but uh, how long did it take you to feel comfortable? Like you knew what you were doing? Um, Good question. I mean, I think pretty quick, I guess, relatively. I mean, I got my, so my A1C was 13.2 when I was diagnosed. And then the next time it was taken, which I think was three months later, it was 6.5. So I came down right away. Mm -hmm. And, um, I, uh, I mean, at first I was on the shots and it's funny when I was first diagnosed, my instinct was, Oh, I hope I don't need an insulin pump. Like that just, I just associate an insulin pump with like, I don't know, being sick and I don't want this device hooked to me and stuff. And then as I learned more about what it, what about type one diabetes, then it, it, it became clear like, Oh, I definitely want an insulin pump and I'm so lucky to be able to have an insulin pump. And so, um, I got that maybe three months or less after I was diagnosed. So I had the CGM from the get go, although in a couple months I switched to Dexcom and then I had the pump just a couple months after being diagnosed and, um, and I'm on Omnipod and that, I mean that those both helped a lot. I really liked the flexibility of being, on the pump, being able to, you know, not have to plan ahead. Like if I don't know that I want to have dessert, I'm not going to have to give an extra shot if I decide I want to have dessert later. Like it's just easier to put it into the pump. So, um, I mean, I guess within, by the time I got all the gear, like I felt, I felt pretty comfortable. I mean, your A1C came down remarkably. Um, and then you upgraded your gear. Are you uh, interested or do you even know about the Omnipod 5 was just announced the other day? The, the FDA um, cleared it for the algorithm? So, yeah, I am aware. But um, I so my my endocrinologist actually recommends that I not go to the automatic system while I'm um, trying to have a baby because my control is better than he thinks it would be on the automated system because they have to, um, and he didn't know about the Omnipod, but the, the other companies you had to set or, or you could not adjust. Um, I think you had, you had to set your goal blood sugar at a hundred, I think. And so, you know, if you were sitting at 80, then it would give you, give you sugar or, you know, it, it would Take want you to go insulin. back up. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so he was saying that, you know, he actually thought that my control is, is better without that because he didn't know about Omnipod, but figured it would be that same standard of, of a hundred. 
So I, I mean, do you do you know? Yeah, is it I that do know. Thing? So uh, it is um, Omnipod's a one ten, if I'm not mistaken. I think Control IQ is like a hundred and twelve and a half, which is must. I don't know. It's an odd number, but um, yeah, they're both in their first generation still. So I think that was what they could safely and kind of quickly get through the FDA as a target. But you're right. If you're doing better yeah. than that on your own, um, you're going to want your A one C lower while you're trying to get pregnant for sure. Yeah, and I, I definitely want to go to the automated system when, um, you know, this, I don't know, when, maybe over. when they come out with the next one and you can have a lower range or something. Because I do think, of course, it would help with like eliminating the nighttime alarms and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, but right now, that's my doctor didn't recommend that. And it makes makes good sense to me because, yeah, if I'm sitting at 80, I don't want to go up. Yeah, no, I mean, now that you said it, it, it makes sense to me as well. So, um, so you guys, I mean, I'm assuming like you're not, listen, you're not old Karen, but you're at that spot where you were kind of like, I guess if we're going to have kids, maybe we ought to do it. Right. Um, how long do you try before you think like, I'm getting tired of having sex and we're not pregnant yet. Like, like we, <laughs> I mean, does that happen where you just like, Oh my God, we're gonna have to do it again. Um, or like, what's the, <laughs> what's the length of time before you start wondering what's up? I think for like your average couple, I think they want you to try for at least a year before you start looking into it. But for us, um, because I knew I was going to be a high risk um, pregnancy because of diabetes and because of my age, I think six months was um, enough for them to say, okay, we can start doing some tests. And so, um, yeah, I think it was I'm trying to think of the timeline though. It might've been a, it might've been a year or a little less than a year before Mm -hmm. we um, actually got all the testing. And then, uh, you know, then they said that we had a very low, like less than 1% chance of conceiving naturally. And they recommended IVF, which was another big shock to us. Um, And so then we, well, took some time to decide if we wanted to do that or not. And then we, decided to. Um, and so that's why I thought it would be helpful to come on and talk about like how to manage your diabetes when you're going through IVF, because you're taking all these shots and being pumped with hormones and it affects your, your insulin, um, yeah. you know, needs and everything. Um, well, I definitely want to hear about then, that. Yeah. I, but wait, since I, I'm sorry, something happened. Well, now, now, um, and we can still talk about that. Now I feel like I'm remembering not as much as I hoped I'd remember for that conversation because of all what's happened since then. So since then, I um, I did two rounds of IVF and then we had our first embryo transferred, they call it, like implanted and uh, it worked and I got pregnant. And then um, I was five months pregnant and we lost the baby just. Um, oh, Karen. Sorry. No, no, don't be sorry. I didn't know. And now I'm thinking of every stupid thing I've said over the last 20 minutes and I'm going (laughs) to cry. No, 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 it's all good. It was just um, less than two weeks ago. So it's still very um, raw, but um, yeah, we lost the baby due to um, genetic abnormalities, which was really shocking because we did as part of the IVF process, we had our embryos genetically tested um, which should check, which checks for genetic mm-hmm. abnormalities. And we, you know, only transferred the embryo that was genetically normal. So we thought, 
we had ruled that out. We knew that I, you know, because of having diabetes, I was at higher risk of other pregnancy issues like preeclampsia and, and that kind of stuff. But that was the one thing we thought, okay, well, we're in the clear for at least we don't have to worry about There's you know, thing. genetic abnormalities. And then, um, and then that's what happened. So it turned out we were just in like the one to 2% who had the false positive originally. And, um, and so we just lost the baby. And so that um, is another thing that affects your, your blood sugar. And um, so I feel in my mind, it's much fresher now to talk about diabetes management during the first trimester of pregnancy and into the second trimester and then with pregnancy loss. Um, but of also, of course, go back and talk about the IVF process too. Today's episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by InPen from Medtronic Diabetes. InPen is an insulin pen that offers some of the functionality that you've come to expect from an insulin pump. I know you're thinking, oh, Scott, please tell me more. Well, I will. Yes, the InPen is a pen, but it also has an application that lives on your smart device. This app shows you your current glucose levels, meal history, dose history, an activity log, glucose history, active insulin remaining, a dosing calculator, and reports that you and your physician can use while you're trying to decide what your next step is. Well, 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 it's not just an insulin pen. Now is it? InPenToday.com. That's where you're going to find out more information and get started. If you're ready to try the InPen, just fill out the form at InPenToday.com. Or do some more reading. There's actually some videos you could check out too about the dosing calculator, the dose reminders, carb counting support, and the digital logbook. So if you want to lighten your diabetes management load, but you're not ready for an insulin pump, InPen is probably right for you. InPenToday.com. InPen also offers 24 hour technical support, hands on product training, and online educational resources. And here's something else that you'll find at InPenToday.com that is actually very exciting. Now, this offer is for people with commercial insurance and terms and conditions do apply, but you may pay as little as $35 for the InPen. And that's because Medtronic Diabetes does not want cost to be a roadblock to you getting the therapy you need with InPen. $35. How crazy is that? InPenToday.com. InPen requires a prescription and settings from your healthcare provider. You must use proper settings and follow the instructions as directed, or you could experience high or low glucose levels. For more safety information or to get started today, you can go to InPenToday.com. Have you found that getting your diabetes supplies can be a pain in the butt? I have too. But not any longer, because now we're getting Arden's diabetes supplies from U.S. Med. To get a free benefits check, just call 888-721-1514 or go to usmed.com forward slash juice box. US Med has served over 1 million diabetes customers since 1996, and they want you to know that they're offering you better service and better care than you're getting now. US Med always provides 90 days worth of supplies and fast and free shipping. They carry everything from insulin pumps and diabetes testing supplies 
to the latest CGMs like the Freestyle Libre 2 and the Dexcom G6. Arden gets her Dexcoms and her Omnipods from US Med. US Med accepts Medicare nationwide and over 800 private insurers. US Med is the number one distributor for Freestyle Libre systems, the number one specialty distributor for Omnipod Dash, number one fastest growing tandem distributor, the number one rated distributor in Dexcom customer service satisfaction surveys, and they are proud of the white glove treatment that they offer their customers. USmed.com forward slash juice box or call 888-721-1514. And that 888 number is special just for Juicebox podcast listeners. Now, if you decide to go to the website, it's super simple. Here's what it tells you when you get there. Getting started is easy. From the comfort of your own home or office, you can now join over 1 million satisfied customers who rely on our staff of courteous, knowledgeable, and trained U.S. Med customer care representatives to keep you up to date with your medical and diabetic supplies delivered right to your door. Super simple benefits check. Name, phone number, email, zip code, and then just hit the button that says request a free benefits check. It's that easy. Let U.S. Med take care of your supplies so you don't have to worry. I I would like to do whatever you're comfortable with. Actually, I'm sitting here. I'm I'm shocked that you didn't just cancel this. I uh, <laughs> I thought about it. This is I have been like off work, and this has been the first time that I need to be like on, you know, since since. And so I was a little. Um, I thought about canceling it, but um, I don't know. I mean, I didn't want to like have to wait another you know months and months, and I just thought. I, I mean, maybe there are other people out there who, you know, have lost a pregnancy and would benefit from hearing about like yeah. blood sugar perspective of it all. So, well, that um, is very yeah. kind of you. I, I really appreciate that very much. Um, so we'll just tread lightly and uh, we'll talk about what you're comfortable with. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm so sorry because I feel like you're going to walk all through this, but you know, so you they fertilize an egg outside of you, obviously. And then they, they say that there's eggs that are ready to be implanted. Um, you put it in and how many, like how many times did you have to try that implantation process? Was it just once? Yeah. So, um, yes, it was the first time we, we had done that. So we got lucky. It worked on our first time. Um, so they, they, they retrieve the eggs. So, which is a surgery, which is, um, um, you know, another thing where I was like giving the anesthesiologist my phone to look at my Dexcom mm-hmm. the whole time. Cause that was the first time I, um, actually that was, well, anyway, so you do the egg retrieval, they retrieve the eggs and then they mix it with the sperm in the lab. And then, um, the embryos grow for five days and then they freeze them. And then um, they biopsy them to check for the genetic problems. And then, um, and at each step of the process, you, you lose eggs and embryos. So it's like, maybe you get a dozen eggs when you're, they're retrieved. And then, um, you know, only half of them fertilize. And then only, I don't know, 70% of them grow properly in the lab for the five days. And then only, 
40% of them come back genetically normal. So by the time we got to the end of the process, we had just one supposedly genetically normal embryo, which is the one we implanted. Sure. Um, we did another egg retrieval. And from that, in the end, we ended up with two supposedly genetically normal embryos. So we still have two that are frozen and we'll try to transfer those, um, you know, in, in a few months when it's safe to do so. But, um, so yeah, so, but we had only had the one embryo transfer and, uh, and it was about a 60% chance that it would result in a pregnancy. And so it did. So we thought IVF can be really awful for a lot of people. So we thought that like, okay, we, we've had a pretty good go at IVF. You know, we did two rounds and then we got pregnant at our first try. And so we thought like, you know, it worked out okay for us. Yeah. Can I, I, I'm going to have to just ask a childish question or it's not going to leave my head when they fertilize the embryo, you bring that sperm in fresh or do you have it prepackaged from another day? How does that work? <laughs> um, fresh is ideal. If that's not possible, you can, uh, have those sample given earlier and then they freeze it, but fresh is what they prefer. And actually it's kind of a funny story because my husband had a surgery for heartburn. He had a, a surgery um, two days before my my egg retrieval. And then so he came home from the hospital. It's like a major operation. He came from the hospital the the day before, like the night before my egg retrieval. And then the next morning, like at like 6 a.m., I had to get ready and go in and he had to give a sample then. And so he was like, totally, you know, fresh home from the hospital after a surgery. And like, that is the last thing that you want to do. Get woken up at 6am and have to give a sample. (laughs) So poor guy. It was, yeah. Get up. Think of something exciting. I need you over here. (laughs) (laughs) My gosh. Um, But he did it. So fresh sample. Yeah. I'm just going to ask because I, I, I'll, again, I'll wonder surgery for heartburn was his what is he had really really bad heartburn um like all the time and taking the highest doses of just the over-the-counter meds and um so yeah it's called it's called like a i'm not, I'm not gonna remember the name of partial uh um nip nipping fundopulcation or something i don't remember but anyway it's a surgery i think they take um, part of your like esophagus and like or your stomach and tie it up around your esophagus to um, like shrink the to tighten because really? your esophagus gets like opened up or loosened yeah. so to tighten it so wow. yeah well that's <laughs> insane um, I mean honestly the entire conversation I mean despite your outcome you know initially uh, with your first try all of this is just crazy as far as medical technology goes I mean, honestly, it's, it's, it's absolutely unreal. And you said, you said earlier, you're going to try again. You're, you're up for it. Yeah. I mean, not today, but I (laughs) definitely, I mean, we definitely, we want kids and like, you know, I'm not getting younger. And so, yeah, we'll try. It takes a couple of months for all of the like hormones from pregnancy to normalize and for your uterus to shrink back down to 
close to its normal size. And so um, we have to wait, we have to wait um, a few months, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, we'll try again and hopefully, I mean, there's no reason to believe that our remaining frozen embryos, uh, you know, have any problems. We were just, I mean, and we have thoroughly investigated all of this and, uh, it, it turns out, like, I think it was just really bad luck. And we just fell into that small percentage who got a false positive. Right. I'm going to ask you about the diabetes stuff um, in just a second. But first, I, I just was wondering if you could maybe articulate a little bit. Um, I'm assuming you've been on like a roller coaster of emotions, right? Like you got married, you waited. To, listen, you did what you did what I tell my kids to do all the time. Like you waited <laughs> until you were a real person and you understood yourself and you understood other people and you found a, a really good match. You get married five seconds later, you have type one diabetes. You realize in short order, you're having trouble conceiving. I mean, are you okay? Like it feels like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like that's a lot for a person to go through in a short amount of time. And I'm wondering what the impact uh, has been for you. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think I am okay. I agree. It's been a lot. I mean, and I was totally healthy, you know, for the first 35 years of my life. And then all of a sudden diabetes and then infertility and then losing this baby. Uh, it is a lot. Um, I think that, um, so in, in, I've had like a really kick-ass life, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. you know, up until these recent problems, my life is still great, but I had a really great life. Uh, my mom died when I was 12 of cancer and that was awful, of course. And that was like the one big tragedy of my life. And otherwise I've had, you know, really, really great life to the point where I almost felt like I'm, I did feel like, I feel like I'm due for something bad to happen because everything's just been so great for, you know, many years now. And, um, and then, yeah, I kind of got hit with these things. And, but I think to answer your question, I mean, I think I'm doing okay. I think mostly because I'm lucky to have um, resources, you know, like I have great health insurance and I have excellent doctors and I have excellent support system with friends and family. And, you know, I'm like proactive to try to make sure that I stay okay. So I'm, you know, like when the baby died and now participating in a support group, you know, of other mothers who have had similar situations. And I've like, when I got diagnosed with diabetes, I got a therapist just to like, I was okay, but just to like be proactive because I didn't want to have that diagnosis result, you know, and anything, um, you know, bad. So I think that I've been okay coping because of, yeah, those positive things in my life, like a good support system and, and good doctors. Yeah. Solid insurance, even just, you know, things that you can count on, whether they're people or institutions, um, those things can leave you not feeling completely alone when stuff like this happens. Uh, yeah. And, and having lived in Rwanda the year before all this, and we, my husband and I definitely think a lot of like, if we lived in Rwanda, like if we, you know, grew up in Rwanda, 
we wouldn't have, you know, how things would be different. Yeah. Right? We wouldn't have all of these resources and it would be totally different. So yeah. I'm, I'm grateful to have all that. Yeah, the tr- that trip must have packed a, a lifetime's worth of perspective into you. You know, yeah. just seeing yeah. just seeing people live differently in a different part of the of the world. Okay, For so sure. uh, I mean, what part do you want to go through? Like, you know, how how did management change at conception or through IVF? Where where do you want to start? Um, I guess I'll start with IVF. Although I have to admit, now I don't remember as many details. I should have taken notes, but what I do remember is. So when you do IVF, you take daily, multiple daily shots where you're, you know, um, giving yourself hormones to make you grow a lot of eggs. And those uh, drugs make you, those hormones cause insulin resistance. So, and you t- do that for about two weeks and um, like 10 days to two weeks before they do the egg retrieval. And mm-hmm. so um, as that, that two weeks happens, you become more uh, resistant to insulin. So I definitely had to, had to like up my amount. And then, you know, after they retrieve the eggs, then be prepared for that to drop back down. Um, So that's what I remember during that part. And I remember when I had the surgeries for the egg retrievals, I, yeah, like I asked the anesthesiologist to watch my phone the whole time. And, but it was no problem. My blood sugar stayed stable through that. And um, then getting pregnant. Um, so, so I was pregnant for 20 weeks and, um, it's definitely, you know, roller coaster. your needs are changing, could be weekly. Um, so I think it's just a lot of monitoring and adjusting. Um, I felt like usually, you know, when you're not pregnant, my endocrinologist would want me to kind of see a trend for, maybe several days or a week before I would make an adjustment um, because of it. When you're pregnant, my new endo says, you know, if you see a trend for two days, then make an adjustment because things just change so fast. Um, But, and then something interesting I learned when you're pregnant during um, uh, kind of an earlier part of your pregnancy, like toward the end of the first trimester, um, you, need less insulin. And, um, and I read in the, there's a book pregnancy and type one diabetes. And they said that your body starts making its own insulin again, a little bit, which doesn't make any sense to me because how could these beta cells die and then come back alive? Um, so I don't know. I haven't, I haven't fact checked this, but I mean, my endocrinologist also says, said that, yeah, you, your body starts making a little bit of insulin on its own, which is kind of, it's very cool on one hand, but it's also just messes with your, your management because yeah. if you're giving insulin and then your body's giving some too, then it's, it's almost too much. like, like so, having a honeymoon almost where you just, you can't be sure if your needs are really what they are. Did you find it to right. actually happen that way? Well, I didn't find it to be so, so clear as maybe I had read about it being for other people, but my insulin needs definitely went down. Um, I didn't notice it was like a specific sharp decline. I don't know, but I, my insulin needs definitely went, went down. And then I know, you know, as your pregnancy continues, like in the second half of pregnancy, 
you'd become insulin resistant and need much more. I hadn't gotten to that point yet for me. My insulin needs had gone mostly just down. Although I should be more specific, my basal needs went down. My bolus needs went up. And I'm a little uh, odd with my, um, I, I require very little basal and then a lot of bolus. So I was only, I only have like about six units of basal a day, oh, no but then have like a, right now, like a one to six, um, insulin to carb ratio. Wow. So yeah, so <laughs> that's why my new endo was like, maybe you're a lot of, maybe we should test for that. So you're getting like 0.25 an hour through your pump. Yeah. I mean, I have a couple different settings throughout the day, but yeah, from like 0.2 to 0.3. Yeah. Roughly right. 0.25. Exactly. W would you be willing to share your weight with me? Just yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, of course, that's fluctuated a lot in the last couple um, <laughs> months of pregnancy. But um, yesterday, I was 129. 129. Wow, my daughter weighs uh, about what you weigh. And her basal needs are like 1.1 an hour. And, and, yeah, and her, um, her, her carb ratio is like one to four and a half. So that, yeah. that's really something. Wow, no kidding. Um, so when you, so when you introduce the, I mean, it seems clear when you introduce hormones, no matter what, whether it was during IVF or your body doing it during, you know, the baby growing, um, needs fluctuated. How far did they fluctuate with the IVF? Like, what did they go from to when you started doing the injections? Um, I wish I knew. I don't remember, but my best guess would be. Uh, I mean, not a huge, maybe like 15% more okay. um, insulin that I needed. Basil um, went up about that much? Yeah. Okay. And then did you that see your carb ratio guess, yeah. change at all? Um, I don't remember okay. for the IVF. It did for pregnancy. So I was at a one, one to eight, and then I went to one to seven, and then I went to one to six. Did you find the IVF to be personally tumultuous, like people talk about, like with your relationship? Did you find yourself feeling like all over the place when they were introducing hormones and things like that? Um, I felt like it wasn't as bad for me as I had read about. Mm -hmm. um, I remember when we were trying to decide whether to do it, I read one study that showed that women who do IVF have just as much like stress and anxiety as women cancer patients. Okay. And I was like, Whoa, that's, that's heavy. But, um, no, it wasn't, it wasn't as bad for me. Maybe that's because, um, that was when after COVID started. So I was working from home. Maybe it was less stressful having, you have to go in every other day for ultrasounds and blood work. And that's, you know, just demanding just on a schedule. Um, you know, if you're working, and you have to leave work every other day to go to the doctor and you have to give shots multiple times a day. And, and so maybe it was a little easier that I was at home. My husband was also at home and he was giving me the shots, which helped. And also I have diabetes, so I've given myself shots before. Yeah. And so that wasn't, you know, as big of a, a shock as I think it is for a lot of people. And then as far as just emotionally, I did like a w after about a week of being on the hormones, I did um, feel more emotional. Yeah, but it was yeah. kind of short lived and it wasn't, 
it wasn't anything super dramatic for me. I know it is for a lot of other people, but I actually thought that that part of it wasn't as bad as mm. I was imagining it could be. You know, you weren't kidding. Your life was going well. I just realized you were like in your local newspaper and things like that. And I, I, I'm, I'm like poking <laughs> around. I'm poking around. Right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> things were, well, well listen, I, 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 listen, I can tell you something. I've never gone through what you've gone through. Um, but I have been alive about 15 years longer than you. And um, it comes back around again is like the best thing I can say is that it just, like no matter where you are, it doesn't last. The great stuff doesn't last and the bad stuff doesn't last. It's all sort of about moving forward. And you seem to have that attitude. Like I've been trying to figure out for the last 40 minutes, like your personality. And and <laughs> I, I'm I'm getting I think I'm starting to get to it. Like at first I was confused because I didn't realize that you were you were here and all this had happened and you were probably nervous and upset while you were talking, but you've loosened up over the last 10 minutes since you told me about the baby. And, um, and, but you're very matter of fact, like you must work well in journalism is what I keep thinking. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, yeah. I, I would describe myself as being very like open and direct and very like logical and yeah, analytical and stuff. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So is that the part of you that you're using to move forward with all this? Like, I mean, trying again seems like a big step, but to you, it just seems like an obvious step because you went through all this, you still have the eggs and you still want to have a baby, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, to me, it seems like, yes, obvious. You're right. I mean, I just, I mean, this is, this has been, you know, devastating, but I don't, I don't see how waiting would you know, longer than what is medically advised. I don't see how waiting longer would be helpful. If anything, it would just be harmful because I'd be older and, you know, the older you are, the more risks you have with pregnancy. And so, and I mean, ideally we'd like to have two kids. We are completely realistic and under understand with two frozen eggs and there's 60, 60% chance of working, but we might not get two kids. We might not get one kid. But, um, you know, I definitely want to want to keep trying. And I think I'm, I'm generally an optimistic person. So yeah. um, no, you seem like, yeah. listen, if you want to, I have a kid about to go to college. If you want the whole experience, I could I ship her to you. <laughs> you could pay for the school and do all the stuff. And I'm sure it'd be wonderful. Uh, I know I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> and she has Thanks diabetes. So you guys could talk forever. You could share insulin pump supplies. It would really be terrific. Let me get her over there. <laughs> just, I'm going to get her on a train right now. Um, but but seriously, though, I, I just think it's kind of crazy. Like, be, not crazy. It's nice because you, I never heard you say, you know, we're, we're, we thought about not doing it again or we're going to give up or we're not going to try. Like, that was, um, I think that's brave and it sounds... Sh- like it, it, it's rooted in a lot of strength, in my opinion. So, well, thank you. Yeah. But you've also now you're, re, you know, as you're relaying your story, you've been through some things. I mean, living through your mother's passing at a young age is, um, you know, I mean, it's obviously impactful, but it also builds, you know what I mean? Like some people go through hard stuff and you come out the other side a little better prepared to deal with the next difficult thing. And that's really, uh, it's kind of wonderful. Uh, in a sad, yeah. in a sad but but very human way, uh, I, I I'm enjoying your story. So, 
Uh, how long do you have to wait? Is it the, I mean, this just, what did you say? This just happened two weeks ago. Yeah. Less than two weeks ago. Um, well, the IVF doctors said that they recommend waiting six months before trying again, but they said, you know, that's not a strict rule and we can just revisit that conversation with the doctor in a few months. Mm -hmm. Um, they said it definitely takes a few months for, like I said, the hormones to stabilize and the uterus to shrink. So I, I mean, definitely two or three months. And then after that, we can have another conversation about it and see if everybody would feel comfortable doing it, you know, sooner than six months, I imagine we'll do an ultrasound and see if my uterus is the right size. And so we'll just see how it goes, but hopefully, you know, in about six months or so. How did this impact your husband? The, the loss of the baby, did he handle it differently than you did? Um, he handled, I would say we've handled it similarly, which I'm thankful for because I know that that pregnancy loss can definitely, you know, impact couples in a negative way. Um, so far, I feel like we've really been a team. Um, he took he took a week off work, which I was really grateful for because, you know, I think a lot of men especially feel like pressured to keep going. Um, and, but all of the people we talked to who had been in, had, had similar experiences gave the advice of, um, you know, making sure that we took time. And a lot of people said, I wish I would have taken more time or men that didn't take time said they wish they would have. And so, um, I'm glad that he did. And it was really nice that we had then a week together at home to be able to like properly grieve you know we had our we we had wanted to have the sex be a surprise but after we found out that we were losing the baby we looked and um he was a boy and we were able to um like get him cremated and just um make like read some books uh, you know about loss and um do things together that i think helped us both heal. So yeah, I mean, I know grief hits everybody differently, but I actually feel like we've been pretty similar. One difference is that I was more like sitting on the couch that week Mm -hmm. and he, he, he copes more by um, staying a little busier just around the house, like cleaning or doing home projects um, is more helpful to him than just sitting there. So that was one difference, but like overall we've been pretty similar. Yeah. Will you, um, ha- were you working through this or? Um, I mean, I was, I, when, you know, we found out that we were going to lose the baby. I, um, you know, I, I asked for a leave, but, um, but it's a little messy cause I, I am teaching a class right now. And frankly, it would be a lot more stressful and more work for me to try to like hand over my class and prepare content for someone else to manage my class than for me to just do it. So I've continued teaching my class and then I'm, um, I I have administrative responsibilities. And so those I've, um, mostly handed off and then I do research and that I've just had to put on pause. So it's been a bit of a, of a mix. Would you mind if we took a huge U-turn here in our conversation? Um, sure. Okay. Is 
your opinion, obviously. Um, are we are we screwed the way we're getting our media now? Like, like <laughs> that 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 there's not some like grizzled person who's not really making a ton of money, who nobody knows who they are, who spends four months writing an article that we read and it's well researched and and I mean we're in a world now where everybody like right like your your money comes from clicks. So your banner headlines are more important. It almost doesn't matter sometimes what the article says. Um, it just seems like it's, I don't know, I just, I'm old enough to remember being delivered what felt like the news. And now I feel like I'm being delivered like, uh, I don't know, uh, the report from my team. Y- you know what I mean? Um, and I was wondering what you thought about that. And if young people coming up in journalism are even aware of where it used to be. I mean, I think you're not alone in feeling the way that you feel about it. And journalism has a lot of problems right now. Um, You know, just going back to losing its business, its advertising business model when the internet really came about. And then, you know, a major lack in public trust um, and, uh, you know, this whole fake news and extreme partisanship and, it's it's no joke. These are serious problems, and it's it's a hard time. Um, but uh, I am op- optimistic. There is there is really good journalism out there. I think the bad thing is it's harder to find, and you have to be um, intentional about finding it. And I think you know, a big issue is is media literacy. So I think we should do a better job about teaching people, you know, how to analyze and interpret news stories and and where to look for good news stories. So I actually do research on uh, more socially responsible ways to report the news. So there are some, um, there are some forms of news reporting called like constructive journalism um, or solutions journalism, where we, it's still, you know, rigorous, like fact-based reporting but where you kind of don't just focus on the problem, you take an extra step to, to look at, well, who's doing what about this problem? Who, how are people responding to this problem? And then focusing on that, um, you know, to, to make people feel more empowered and to have better effects on news audiences, because a lot of the news that people read today just makes them feel hopeless and depressed. And so um, I think there is really good journalism out there, but yeah, it's harder. You have to be kind of have to know where to look and you have to be like a smart thinker yeah. to figure it out, it which al- is hard. It also seems like the people who still do it with any kind of, you know, eye on quality have had to go to subscription models and work for themselves basically. And then that puts me in a situation as a consumer to say, look, I can't give, I can't give every journalist in the world $15 a week that I need to hear from. Like like some conglomeration needs to come together, identify those people, pull them together in one place. Like I can give that person money. You know what I mean? Like I can get, and they can pay them. And I also see why those journalists might not want to do that because with a smaller audience, I think they're making more money than they ever have really working within institutions. Um, so they might be doing great work, but I, I don't know how to, like, I don't know how to 
collate it? Like, how do I find it and put it all in one place so I can see it? Like, I can't spend my whole day. You know what I mean? Like, I think that ends up being the bigger issue is that there is something, there was something special about knowing that, like, you're going to crack open the New York Times and it's going to, it's going to be the New York Times. And now it may not be, and and maybe no newspaper is really. And then you think, well, okay, well, a TV channel could do it, but then they start falling into camps of like, well, we'll lean one way or the other. And then, you know, it eventually just becomes about serving you news that you want, not the news that exists. And I don't know, it just seems like when I talk to younger people about it, they have no concept for it because they've, they've kind of grown up in this place where their phone has fed them exactly what they're interested in. And they don't, they don't even think about looking at things that they disagree with. It seems to me. Yeah. And they're definitely not willing to pay for news, which I understand. I mean, why would we expect people to pay when they can get news for free? And also when they read the news and it makes them feel terrible. Like why would we expect people to want to pay for that? product. And so it is hard, but I know, you know, there's a lot of people experimenting with a lot of different business models and journalism, and that's still, you know, still something that needs to be worked out is how, how we can do it effectively and still make enough money to do it effectively. Yeah. It's funny, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing, I mean, honestly, that's my business model though, too. Like I have a, you know, I make a living feeding diabetes content to people who are interested in it, but it just seems it seems different to me because I'm not, it, it's not like there's some other uh, perspective on diabetes that's um, the way the other side thinks about it. And I'm not, delivering. I don't know. Yeah, I think there, there is. is. Right? I yeah. think there is. I mean, there's definitely like what you, what you have that's different is basically advocating tighter management. I mean, I think, I think there is kind of an other side, like endocrinologists who go by basic guidelines of, you know, keep your blood sugar between 70 and 180, where if you or I see 180, we, you know, think of that as being high and and aim for a better target than what a lot of the um, kind of guidelines recommend. So I think in one way, you do, you do have a a unique. Well, I have to say that would be a hell of a podcast. I don't know how you'd keep that going very long. Just wherever your blood sugar lands is fine. Don't worry about it. You'll be okay or you won't. Let's let's dance in the rain. Uh, yeah, I don't know where you'd go with that. Um, but I, I take your point. I mean, I guess I have picked a, a perspective that probably prior to me talking about it, there were only a few people who, who would jump out in public and say, I think you should be working harder to keep your blood sugar lower and stable. Um, most of those people, I mean, even people who think that often are, are scared to say it out loud. Um, it just seemed obvious to me when I started doing it. Like, why would, why, how, I always thought, like, how would it be that I know how to do this and I wouldn't share it with other people? That just seemed ridiculous. Um, but anyway. Another thing that always seemed interesting to me is, you know, when you're pregnant, they have stricter standards for your blood sugar and want you to stay between 65 and 140, at least 70% of the time. And the goal is to have a resting blood sugar between 65 and 95 and the goal is to not be over 122 hours after your meals. That last one was always hard for me, but um, but I always thought it's interesting. Like, why is this the standard only when we're pregnant? Like, we should care and invest in our health and our bodies 
not just when we're also caring for the baby inside of us, but for ourselves too, you know? Like, yeah. We, yeah. Jenny and I laugh about that sometimes that, I mean, not laugh, but we're like, how is it? Did we say the same thing? It's like, why is it more important that you're healthy when you're pregnant? And the rest of the time it's like, ah, oh, whatever. Um, but, but I think if you dig down deep into it, the part of me believes that, I mean, you know, you said it earlier, like there's not a lot of, con- like a lot of information for people. Most people aren't going to have that information. So you're going to, um, you'd be immediately setting them up for failure, which could have them backslide or just tumble out of concern at all and just let it go. Like maybe if you give them something that's reasonable for most people to achieve, maybe the idea is then most people can feel like they're being successful and will keep more people in a healthier range instead of fewer people in a tighter range and everybody else just gets thrown away. I just happen to believe that that doesn't have to be the case. I think everyone can hear the information and then achieve their own level of success. Like we don't have to, we don't have to paint with such a wide brush. You you know what I mean? There's no reason why you can't feed the information to people in a way where you take one thing out of it and your blood sugar doesn't go over 120 and another person takes something else out of it and their blood sugar doesn't go over 140 and et cetera. And why can't everybody have their own level of success instead of, you know, saying that this is success and this is failure and you either fall into it or you don't. And I don't know. And that's why I think there needs to be classes. Like when it, when someone's diagnosed, they're automatically enrolled in these classes because you, you need to be given all that information. And it is, it's too much to be given yeah. in one appointment when you're diagnosed, but there's so much to learn. I mean, I've been learning for two and a half years and I feel like, you know, there's still so much to learn. And now I just can't believe the things I didn't know when I was diagnosed. Um, right. You know, just little things like, like fiber, you know, like the impact of the different types of things you eat and how that, how that should cause you to adjust how you're giving the insulin, like stuff like that is so important. And, you know, like when, when I got um, diagnosed, the, what they told me was, when your food is hot, take your shot. So like, you know, take your insulin right at the time you start and you start eating. And, you know, I know some people are told to always pre-bullish like 15 minutes before they eat, but I mean, it just massively depends on what you're eating. And I do eat foods that are, have a lot of, that are more slowly digesting. And so I often, you know, would, it would not be good for me to pre-bolus. And so, and then during pregnancy, your digestion slows. And so, um, I, I needed to extend a lot more and like that kind of stuff is really crucial to know. And you just, you don't get that when you're first diagnosed. You certainly don't. Um, yeah, that's, I'm listen, I bang that drum as loud as I can. And I do think this format is, um, as successful as I've seen so far delivering that information, because like you said, there is so much and you can't get it all at once. So it's nice to just sort of pop in once in a while, listen, absorb something, go put it into practice, come back at something else. I do think that's, I mean, the way people learn is, um, you know, of paramount importance when you're trying to set something like this up. So I don't know. I know mm-hmm. if you put me in a class, I would leave with nothing. I just, I know how my brain works anyway. Um, Karen, is there anything we haven't talked about that you wish we would have? Um, well, I I hope we didn't just get too wrapped up in 
in my story and didn't talk about diabetes management enough. <laughs> well, here's what I got from that. Uh, more, homo- more hormones, more insulin, uh, qu- right? Quick, quick changes, nothing. You can't be waiting two, three, four, five days to make a decision. You saw, you saw needs increase and you had to increase with them quickly. Those needs also could have gone away just as quickly, especially with the IVF shots, right? Like it was there and then it wasn't. Um, and with losing the baby, that's something we yeah. talk about. But as soon as the placenta is out of you, um, you can expect your insulin needs to drop um, like up to 20%. And I, I saw that happen. Too. Right. Well, I'll tell people here, too, that there is a pregnancy episode inside of the Diabetes Pro Tip series. Uh, that's me and Jenny Smith talking about all this stuff. And I also have a series um, called... Oh my gosh, what's it called? Am I going to forget? It might be She's Having a Baby, uh, where we we followed the same person, talked to her at the end of her first trimester, second, third, and then a few months postpartum and and had four different conversations along the way, um, which I, I hear from other women has been helpful for them. I yeah, am, for me too. Yeah, was it? Oh, I'm glad. Uh, mm-hmm. I am... I don't want to say I'm sorry, but I am, I am, I don't know you well enough to say this, I don't think, but I am so sorry for everything you've gone through. I'm grateful that you talked about it here today. I, 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 listen, let's not make any promises, but if you want to come back on like a year from now and tell me how it's going, I'd love to hear back from you again. Yeah, I, um, I'd love that. Hopefully it, it would be great to be back on with some more positive news for sure. It certainly would be. Um, yeah, I'd be up for that. So I'm not saying keep me in the loop or you don't have to send me like a, like an announcement or anything like that, but, <laughs> but an email would be <laughs> wonderful. Um, and then we could get something together afterwards. Um, okay. thank you very well, much for doing you. this. I really do appreciate yeah. it. Would you hold on one Thanks second for, for me? having me? Oh, sure. of course. My pleasure. Well, first, I really want to thank Karen for coming on the show and persisting uh, despite her situation. I also want to thank InPen from Medtronic Diabetes and remind you to go to InPenToday.com to learn more and get started. Don't forget to go to TouchedByType1.org and find them on Facebook and Instagram. And of course, to get your free benefits check from US Med, you can call 888-721-1514 or go to usmed.com forward slash juicebox. If you go to juiceboxpodcast.com, go to the top of the page and click on Diabetes Pro Tip. Actually, let me tell you about the whole top of the page. Episode list. Diabetes Pro Tip, the Omnipod 5 Pro Tip Series, a list of best endocrinologists at juiceboxdocs.com. There is a link to the free private Facebook group, an A1C and blood glucose calculator, the blog, the signs of type 1 diabetes, a merch store, Arden's diagnosis story, and more. At all the top of the page, just click on it, it takes you right to it. You can also scroll down a little bit and find links for Pandora, Android, iPhone, Spotify, Amazon Music, places where you can click right on the link. It'll open up your app 
and you can subscribe to the podcast and listen. There's lists of sponsors on this page. When I say like click on the links at juiceboxpodcast.com, it's there. And also a few of the series within the podcast you'll find right on the face of juiceboxpodcast.com. But back to the top of the page where you click on diabetesprotip.com takes you to a sub page where I've put players for all of the, almost all of them, I'm getting to it, all, let's just say all of the, all of the series within the podcast, 44 episodes of Defining Diabetes, there's a player right on the page. Like, I'm on another computer right now, watch this, I'll just click on something. In this episode of Defining Diabetes, Jenny Smith and I are going to define honeymoon. See that? Yes, that odd and unpredictable time. It won't pause, hold on a second. I got it. Sorry. So the Defining Diabetes series is there. All 44 episodes in an online player. Scroll down a little bit. Bold Beginnings series. And then the Variable series. Diabetes Pro Tip. Links to the sponsors again. After Dark series. Mental Wellness episodes. Ask Scott and Jenny. 18 episodes of that and running. Algorithm Pumping. You interested in Omnipod 5, Control IQ, or Loop? We have episodes about that. I think we even have one about that one from Medtronic. Uh, defining thyroid series, right? A lot of you have thyroid issues. Here is thyroid disease explained. It's all at juiceboxpodcast.com.